0: Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at LapsusLima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. This is part three of our look at Louis Sullivan's final published work, A System of Architectural Ornament According with a Philosophy of Man's Powers. If you would like some background and context, You will find episodes 48 and 47 further back in the feed. Of course, we always have our member-exclusive episodes that anyone who wants more content can unlock by clicking the orange Patreon icon on our homepage. These intermezzi now amount to 15 episodes and counting. Thank you so much to all our members who keep this podcast going, and especially to our newest member, Johan, from Denmark. If someone knows any one thing about Sullivan, it is that he originated the phrase, form follows function. If someone knows two things about him, it is that his buildings were also highly ornamental, in the shadow of the 20th century, we tend to frame these two things as a contradiction. The question is, though, are they really? And could this seeming inconsistency be a reason why the study of this otherwise groundbreaking architect has been considerably neglected in comparison to that of his contemporaries and successors? In a general sense, the functional in architecture is supposed to be devoid of ornament and decoration. A doorknob shaped like a rose will not be as functional to manufacture, use, or clean as its plain circular counterpart. A facade where the trappings of a Greek temple dictate proportions and window arrangements for twenty floors of offices will seem less functional than a simple and featureless glass and steel exterior, framing window inlets for sunlight and vent grates for air conditioning. These are the extreme conditions that intensify the contradictions at hand, and this contradiction seems normal to us. In the light of this customary perspective, Sullivan's work makes it look as if his right brain did not know what the theory of his left brain was on about. Now, we are accustomed to thinking of beauty as something separate from the external world, something that the human mind incorporates as a value judgment. We say that it is in the eye of the beholder, something Kant articulated quite precisely in his third critique. The analysis and appreciation of beauty is most properly considered in the distinction between free and adherent beauty. Free beauty is admiring a landscape or a collection of lines on a paper that appear pleasing to the eye with no additional benefit. This stands in distinction to adherent beauty, what mathematicians call the elegance of an equation or an engineer, the beauty of an airplane, the spare aerodynamic lines that help ensure both speed and flight. The philosopher was, in effect, expressing that which logically follows from the conceit that a human is a distinct ego, an isolated consciousness apart from the surrounding environment. Beauty has only become pure, only beauty as such, when it involves the internal workings of human awareness as distinct and separate from the external world. The interstitial tissue found between Descartes' I I think-therefore-I-am model of mind-body dualism and Kant's critical formulation of beauty is the latter's differentiation between phenomenon and noumenon. Since everything comes to us through the senses, we perceive only phenomena, the effects or Applied functions that the inaccessible noumena, or things in themselves, have upon the surrounding world. Adherent beauty is beauty that is still bound up in this world of functions, of things interacting with other things. Beauty only becomes free when it is swallowed up entirely by a most peculiar noumenon, that of the human ego, where it attains the status of a purer beauty, as an object of contemplation. Once this distinction is internalized, it would seem natural enough that form should follow function in the way that B follows A. One noumenon triggers select phenomena, another Human noumenon will perceive these phenomena and contemplate sensory information as a new thing in itself. If so judged, this thing may be valued to have the quality of beauty. Function is thus dynamic and external, while beauty is static and internal. If an object serves utility sufficiently, and importantly, if we are in the privileged position of being able to move forward beyond function, then we will be able to make a judgment as to the beauty of the object. So within the billiard ball model of the universe, function is the primary determinant of form. When humans open their eyes, Some tinkering is allowed, but it must not interfere with this underlying function, hence the tendency in certain strains of modernist architecture for all form to resemble unadorned drafting lines. Despite the fact that visual simplicity is often very complicated to achieve, this blank slate, free from the interference of historicizing ornament, was often sought. But there is another way of conceptualizing how form follows function that does not fall into this schizoid inherited worldview. While form can certainly follow function as if they were separate steps, function can also be followed as if it were a continuous path, with the form An unfolding along it. In certain branches of developmental biology and design, this is known as the creod, or the necessary pathway. Due to Sullivan's emphasis on biology and the seed germ, this continuous, rather than discrete, view of function is likely the more adequate interpretation of his theory. Stepping back for a moment from Sullivan, his works gain even greater value in that they urge us to look beyond the cultural and philosophical frameworks that we are accustomed to. It is important to ask if form followed function in the way high modernism interpreted it, and if this is a general law, then why? are ornamental efflorescence and detail so pervasive both in nature and at almost every turn in human history? The fact is that strict functionalism, expressed as unadorned design, is an anomalous development, endemic to the industrial age. What allowed this idea to manifest itself in built form is the separation that Kant made explicit in his analysis of beauty in dividing it between the extraconscious and the intraconscious. Though he did not invent this distinction, he did put down exactly what his culture had been building up to for some time, namely that function and beauty are different. The world acts in random events according to specific rules, like billiard balls on a table. Human consciousness exists as an accident, whether through divine intervention or by chance. The concept of human awareness as separate ego connects directly to the notion that beauty and function are distinct and that beauty is added on to function through the subjective judgment of an individual. In this rapid survey of late Western intellectual history, one can discern the outlines of 20th century design. Now, inject 20th century crises into the picture. The masses increase and design is challenged by the need to minimize the subjective and maximize the universal. There, where functional, external drivers must be met, the internal affair that is beauty can be set aside. Unlike the aristocratic ages of the past, ours has neither time nor money nor attention for free beauty. Adherent beauty is the safest route, and the safest lane within this highway is to emulate the plainer clarity of geometry. Euclidean forms, colorless and therefore honest, rise to dominate. The aggressive striving to maximize the objective, to the greatest possible extent, is called out as supposedly starting from zero. Expressions of any internal sentiment may tread on the internal sensibilities of another, so they must be avoided. Form is not just separate from function. It is secondary to it. As we alluded to in the first episode of this chapter, though, Sullivan's image of the unitary seed germ points beyond these commonplace distinctions. In his lengthy introduction to the visual exemplifications of his ideas, he insistently repeats that the powers of mankind are both internal and natural. And right there, we are met with a significant departure since, according to the Kantian model, we equate phenomena with what is natural, and thus external to us. Sullivan furthermore argues that genius is, at least potentially, a universal quality. So, either the locus of genius can be implemented everywhere in unique and intelligible ways, or the power of specific genius can be applied broadly. This is also in direct opposition to the modernist insistence on starting from zero, which, as we have seen here, amounts to a tactical retreat into objective geometry. Sullivan outlined a much more dauntless path one that has been barely trodden, but which points towards a new conception of design. Join us as we trace a path down the other side of this mountain, through Sullivan's enumerated powers of man. Next time on Lapsus Lima.